this is a message that I've given a few times before, so uh, we'll see how it goes. Sometimes the picture goes better than others, but uh, so you can pray for me as you think about it. The, uh, the message is based on Psalm 1, a very familiar psalm and uh, one that maybe most of you have committed to memory. So just here at the beginning of the, as I get started drawing, I would like for you to, to uh, together, we'll say this, this psalm, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The first main point that I have in the message is that in order for us to be a blessed person, we need to reject worldly values and ideas. He starts off saying, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And you might wonder, well now why does he start off with something negative? Why does he start off, Blessed is the man that... Uh, does something good, but no, that walketh not, starting off with the negative. I'm not here to exactly explain why that is. I don't know, but uh, perhaps it's to provide a contrast. But I have to wonder if maybe it's because he knows that this is something that we struggle with. And perhaps we might say, well, that's not me walking in counsel of the ungodly. But how often are we influenced by the worldly ideas that are so much around about us. And so in order for us to be to be blessed, to be a blessed person, I believe we need to reject worldly values and ideas. And we may say, well, um, we don't we don't go to the wicked. We don't we don't listen to the counsel of the ungodly. We don't go to the psychiatrist. And yet how much are these ideas part of our daily life and we're influenced them by them from time to time? If, um, and I'd like to go over some, some ideas here, maybe sort of a variety of ideas of, of ways that I think sometimes where maybe these things come a little closer home than what we'd like to admit. One that, of course, is, is quite prevalent today and that is that the scriptures don't mean what they say. In other words, there are scriptures that that we have, yes, in the scriptures, but they're there, but, but it doesn't really apply to today's, or it doesn't apply to me, or it doesn't apply to my situation. And we may feel that, that we're not nearly as prone to that as other groups, and, and that may be true, but uh, how often are we somewhat... Um, 
influenced by that idea that perhaps the scripture doesn't really mean what it says. It's it's uh, that's just not the way things work nowadays. And um, as we think about the area of our of our lives and maybe in particular in our finances and so forth, it uh, maybe these things hit us a little closer home than we'd like to admit. When you think about what the scripture has to say about laying up treasures in heaven, um, it seems as though we like, to, we like to believe that we can do both. We can lay them up here on earth and also lay them up in heaven. What, when we think about the American dream and, and uh, laying up for the future and having all the things that we'd like here in this life, how, how much does that affect us? How much does that come closer home than what we'd like to admit sometimes? And so how often do we tend to feel like it's our right to have a, a comfortable home and a beautiful house and beautiful yards and gardens and some of these things? Do we feel like that's just sort of our right? How much do we measure people by their financial success? So in other words, if they're financial in business, if they're successful in business, then, then they're a successful person. If, if they're not, then, well, they just didn't quite manage. They just didn't quite make it. Um, what is the, what is the measure of a man in our minds? What what do we measure success by? By how well he's doing financially, or by what he's doing for the Lord, or how well he's prospering in his spiritual life? Do, are we ever uh, subconsciously do we measure people by their worth, by their wealth, by their their worth financially? And so, right along with that kind of already mentioned it, you know, a nice house, a nice car, uh, these things are important to the world, and sometimes I believe they seem pretty important to us too. And so while we're talking about that, I think it's pretty pretty easy for us at times to feel like, well, um, we need to plan for the future, we need to invest, we need to make investments, we need to have good investments, um, we need to um, we need to be wise in those areas, and do we ever consider the fact that maybe God would have us to do some investing for him, investing in his, in his kingdom work? Or do we say, well, no, he doesn't pay very good returns. And uh, so would God ever have us to say be investing in, in mission work or something of that nature, something that's more uh, kingdom related? Or do we ever, changing subjects just a little bit, but do we ever feel like that, you know, we need to, we need to do something to secure the things that we have. And so... It's only it's only reasonable. It's only it's only good management. It's only good stewardship to have our things insured. We need to have a certain amount of insurance so that we don't lose these things that God has given to us. And there'd be a lot of people that would feel like that's uh, only reasonable. And I'm not here to say what you should do, but uh, what, where are we getting these ideas from, anyhow? Well, this one's a little bit changing subjects a little bit, but uh, back to what the world views as important, 
How much do we, how much do we judge people on their outward appearance, on their even on their physical attractiveness or unattractiveness? Have you ever found yourself um, relating in a certain way to an individual because he was a he or she was a very attractive person, uh, physically, personality-wise, how whatever you want to say. This person was an attractive individual, and so you related to them just a little differently than you would have if it would have been someone that was not, that you had deemed not so attractive. And, you know, that's very prevalent in the world that, you know, handsome men and beautiful women, they're the ones that get ahead, and uh, at least in some categories. And if we're not careful, those things can, can affect us. And so if you're, if you're not that, then you just didn't quite make it. When it comes to the area of our families, you know how the world would say that it's uh, almost irresponsible to have more than one or two children, um, and uh, of course that goes against being able to, to have all the worldly possessions that they want. And then when it comes to how you're going to raise those children, we know how the, the world would believe that it's... Uh, Rule to use corporal punishment. Spanking is outdated. It doesn't work. On and on. And uh, you know, if we're not careful, we can buy into some of those ideas. Maybe we don't have as much problem in that area. But uh, how do we feel about the world and their philosophy and some of these things? And I'm I'm glad that it seems like at least in some of our circles and our communities, we there's not as much of that kind of pressure is what there are in, in other, what it must be in some other settings. I think though we do face certain amount of pressure in, in the area of when we're raising our children as to what we allow our children to do versus what other people, what other people's children are doing. Um, I don't know how you all feel about, I know how some of you feel, but I think I do, but this thing of the uh, using the internet and uh, playing computer games and some of these things for our children, uh, you know, children, that's a popular pastime nowadays to play on the computer, and um, I don't know how you feel about that, but I have some I have some concerns about that, and why do we why do we want our children uh, playing with playing like they're a race car driver on the computer? If we don't expect them to do that when they're older, and you might say, "Well, that's just a minor thing," but um, seems to me these things all have the effect. And are we walking? Are we walking in the counsel of the ungodly in these maybe what we call small areas? <clears throat> Some of this chalk doesn't want to work very good. Well, going on, as maybe you're maybe you're not in that child, maybe you're not in that age where you have children, maybe you're the youth, and uh, do you ever get the feeling like that when the scripture said that children were to obey their parents, that that, that had to do, that applied to that applies to little children. He was talking about little children there. And that once you become a teenager that you know, yeah, you should obey, but not necessarily all the time. You don't need to obey your parents in everything. Uh, that's that's he's speaking to to children there, not not to youth. 
And I don't know how you feel about that. And I'm not necessarily laying down any sort of, uh, thus saith the Lord, there may be a place and time for a certain age where you uh, obviously need to make some of your own decisions. But I believe God can overrule even in your parents' lives. And uh, I think we need to be careful that we don't just say, well, I'm past that stage now. I can do what I think and do what I please. And so um, I believe there's a place for for respect and obedience even at a, as a child becomes older. Maybe you're facing pressures from, from youth in other settings. Um, do you ever feel like, well, you're just not in the in group? And uh, if you want to be in the in group, you need to make certain changes in your life. You need to do things maybe differently than, than the way you were taught in order to to be in that in-group. Um, there, there's a lot of pressures in, in the age when, when a child, when a person is in the youth. And uh, if we're not careful, we can, we don't maybe necessarily want to say that those are the ungodly. And yet, are we, where are we getting our advice from? Where, what is influencing us? I think we need to be careful about that. It, at a lot of stages in life, not just uh, not just in our youth, but as we're young adults or whatever. Where do these ideas come from that I was discussing here this evening? Do they come truly from God's word? Are they really coming from God's word or are they coming from another source? And if they're coming from another source, then... I believe we do well to beware. Are they coming? Uh, are they coming from the ungodly? So the first point was we need to reject. Uh, I don't know if I have it exactly, but worldly values, worldly ideas. Our minister this morning was talking about the concept of how that. Yes, in the in our evangelical circles, there's a lot of talk about values and so forth. And yet, is it really making a difference in people's own lives? We might have full churches around us. But what about the hearts? Are the hearts are the hearts empty? And so, do we have just uh, a religious name, but have the values that we espouse to, that we say that we believe in, have they really touched our hearts? And are we are we truly different? And so, I believe that we do well to think about that, and not just not just out there, but even for ourselves. The next thing that I have is that if we're going to be a blessed person, we need to reject worldly influences and close associations. Now, I know this sounds like it's about the same as what we had before, but the next one he says, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. And the Amplified has it has the idea of standing submissive and inactive in the path where sinners walk. Um, now, I've asked uh, Brother Ronnie to read some scriptures for us, so I won't have to look them up. So the first one I have is John 17, uh, verses 14 to 17. If you want to read that now. Yes. I have given thee, I have given them thy word, and the word has hated them. 
Okay, you get the picture. We are in the world, but not of the world. Now it's saying he's not to be standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat. Or I'll know I'm getting ahead. But he's not to be standing in the way of sinners. We're not to be having a lot of close associations. And yet he admits that he says he's not. We are not. Uh, we're not to be taken out of the world. And uh, so how do we how do we pull all this together to be in the world and yet not of the world? Okay, Ronnie, why don't you read now Second um, Corinthians six. Verses 14 to 18. Thank you. Not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What communion does light have with darkness? And we're to come out from them and be separate. You know, in the, in the lesson this morning, the Sunday school lesson, it talked about the believers being with one accord. And, uh, you know, that's, that speaks of a, of a oneness, an agreement, a beautiful unity there. Well... That's the very type of unity that we are not to have with the world. Yes, we need to rub shoulders with them. We need to, we, at times there's business dealings and so forth, but it's not that we're with one accord with them. We don't have the same goals. We don't have the same purposes. Um, and we need to be careful in our association with them. And so I believe that he's warning us about that. Now, I'd like for you to read some more, Ron, if you don't mind. Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 11. Again, notice this participation, this communion uh, that he's warning us about. That's Ephesians 5, 1 to 11.
Okay. Now, you notice the, the big contrast there between being a partaker and reproving. You know, there's a lot of difference between partaking, and you might say, well, I'm not a partaker, but even going to the point of, of reproving the, the works of darkness. And so, how are we doing in this area? And so when we're among ungodly people, what's our attitude? Is our goal of being with them to take care of our business and then to be a light as we go, as we go about our business? Or why are we there in the first place? I guess would be one of my questions. Are we there somehow to, like I say, take care of our business, do what we need to do and then, and then, uh, and hopefully be a light while we're there? Or are we there to fellowship? Are we there to somehow uh, be entertained to somehow derive something that satisfies our flesh um, from our worldly associations, from our associations with the world, I should say. And so I think it makes so much difference what our attitude is, what our point of, of being there is. And uh, some of you probably recently heard a, a tape by Dale Heisey that uh, I listened to also and uh, forget exactly what the title was. But his, the idea was of witnessing and being a light, and he mentioned he mentioned this whole thing of, of being a light, and and he, he mentioned as it being a deterrent to us even in the in the face of of immodesty and ungodliness all around us. You know, what's our goal? What's our desire? What are what's our focus? Is it is it uh, to be a witness? And if that's our our motivation, our purpose, then it will it will help to keep us from some of these other or carnal attitudes. And so I believe it has so much to do with with uh, what our goals are when we're among the ungodly. Do we want to just blend in? Do we want to just fit in? Are we hoping that no one knows we're different? That uh, no one knows that we're God's people? And, uh, you know, this can get pretty close home. It's one thing to go up to a man that we don't know and on the streets of D.C. and give him a track. It's a whole other thing to take our ground stand our ground when uh, a close associate, maybe even your own family, is influencing you to, encouraging you to do something that you don't feel comfortable with. And so we need God's help to take a stand. I believe, though, that, and probably many of you can testify to this more, uh, greater than, in a greater way than I could, that, that it makes a lot of difference if we go ahead and take our stand and then... Uh, it's much easier than if we if we waffle to begin with, then it's much harder to stand later. So may we be encouraged to to uh, take a stand for the Lord when we're in ungodly associations. The next one we have is we need to reject worldly attitudes towards the godly. Now, if, if you think about this verse, it says, "Nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful." And in, well, first of all. Uh, you walk if not in the counsel of the ungodly. So, to me, it sort of seems like there's a progression. You first of all, you're you may be listening to them a bit, then you're associating with them, and he says, "Nor um, sitteth in the seat of the scornful." And I, I'm not really sure what all's involved there, but to me, you get the idea of now you're getting to the point where you're actually perhaps even scorning the very people that you were once a part of. And so, does that ever happen? Well, I believe it does. That you know, yes. I was once a Mennonite, but I don't want anything to do with them now. And uh, maybe more antagonistic against them and what 
than what people were that, that never were. Uh, and maybe it's not Mennonite, maybe it's some other... Um, you could fill something else in the blank. But the point is, you get to the point where you know not only are you following the world's advice and attitudes, but you're actually scorning God's people, sitting in the seat of the scornful. I'm going to make that application whether or not that's exactly what's in focus. And the idea I get here of sitting in the seat of the scornful might be uh, a modern day setting of that might be your country store, the bench in the country store where you have the men sitting around talking. And, um, you know, I don't know what goes on in those kind of settings, but it seems to me that those would be those would be just, just settings where it would be very difficult to take a stand for the Lord. There's ungodly peer pressure there and those kind of things. Uh, maybe another scene might be sometimes at night you might see a group of young men or men standing around a back of a pickup truck in a parking lot somewhere. And I don't know what all is going on there, but to me, those are uh, maybe a, a graphic picture of sitting in the seat of the scornful. You're, you're now associating right there with the worldly uh, negative, very negative influences. Well, not only or maybe are we maybe we wouldn't be guilty of such doings, but are we ever guilty of being scornful? Um, maybe scornful of the, the rules that our church has made. We just don't understand. We just don't see why that's necessary. We just really don't think it's a wise decision. Um, if you haven't been guilty of that, I I have. Um, or maybe, maybe another thing that we're guilty of at times is scorning other groups and what they've decided. We, we hear about a decision that a church made and we say, that is ridiculous. Think about how inconsistent that is. Well, they do this over here and now they're, and won't you let you do that? That, that don't make any sense. Now, does that sound familiar? Now, maybe, maybe it doesn't to you. Um, but are we ever guilty of being a, being a scorner, scornful? Um, or maybe it just is as, as close home as looking down, sort of scorning someone in our group that takes a little more, we might say, conservative, um, a little more restrictive view on something. Do we ever look at them and, and sort of scorn them for their position? Well, we need to be careful. The, uh, the scripture says, fools make a mock at sin. I know that's taking a little bit of a different direction. Fools make a mock of sin. And I believe that then what happens is that, that the sin mocks them uh, as they are as they receive the, the results of their sin. And so in order to be a blessed person, we need to reject evil in all its forms. We need to reject worldly values and ideas, worldly influences and associations, and worldly attitudes towards the godly. That's not the whole psalm. The next part says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law doth He meditate day and night. And uh, so we need to choose the best. It's not only enough to reject the evil, we need to choose the best. And of course, the best is God's Word. And so it has a lot to do with our attitude towards the Word of God. It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And the word delight has the idea of pleasure and desire. It's valuable to him. 
He inclines his heart toward it. It just reminds me of somebody that has a hobby or a project that they're just all encompassed in. And um, that's his delight. Ronnie, if you'd read a few verses from Psalm 119, uh, start reading at verse 16 and I'll give you a few a few uh, references as we go along here. Psalm 119, verse 16. Here the psalmist is speaking of the delight that he has in the law of the Lord. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Okay, verse 24. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counsels. And 35. Make me to go to the path of thy commandments. That end, do I delight? Okay, 47. And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. And verse 77. Let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live to thy law is my delight. Okay, all of these speak of the delight that the psalmist had in God's word. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. And so this is what the psalmist is focusing on. It's what he enjoys. He doesn't look at God's law as something dry or boring or restrictive, but rather... He's, it's liberating. He says, I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. So again, in Psalm 119. And why did David delight in God's word? Did he just have a somehow particular interest in, in, uh, in the word of God, and that was sort of his hobby? Well, I really believe that a lot of the reason, a lot of the secret that for David's delighting in God's word was because he delighted in God. He delighted in the person. He delighted in in uh, his relationship with God, and so therefore, he he wanted to know more about God. And how did he know more about God? Well, it was somewhat at least through his word. And um, so he was delighting himself in God's word. It was maybe we might say it was God's love letter to David. And um, not only does it say that he delighted in it, but that he talks about. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. Well, I believe that we might sometimes wonder, how how can we be more successful in meditating? And uh, I think, again, it comes back to our delight. He delighted in it, he liked it, he loved the law of the Lord, and so it wasn't that difficult for him to meditate in it. Now, you know how it is. If you're like me, at least, we don't have a problem thinking about those things that we enjoy. We know fall's coming, and um, if you're in certain communities this time of year, or maybe actually a little later, uh, there's a lot of a lot of talking about hunting and all the um, aspects of hunting. I'm not saying that's all wrong, and I enjoy a little hunting myself. But you know, it's not hard to think about those things. It's not hard to dwell on, on, uh, on those kinds of topics. And, uh, maybe it's because we enjoy it so much. Well, 
It might not be that. It might be your, your hobby be something totally else. But it's not hard to think about those things that we enjoy. It's not hard to think about people that we enjoy. We've, uh, this congregation has had quite a number of weddings this year. And, uh, I think that all of those couples could testify that they didn't mind thinking about their upcoming wedding. They didn't mind thinking about the person. It was easy. Time spent with good time spent with my wife, and and so that's the way it ought to be in our relationship with the Lord too. That we shouldn't have so much trouble meditating on His Word. Now I know that we that meditation is a spiritual exercise, and Satan, of course, is out to hinder us in any spiritual exercise. And meditating is no is no different, but. Uh, I'm sure it comes back a lot to how much effort we put into it as well, which is the same it is with, with other relationships. What, what a level of effort we put into it makes so much difference. Meditation's been compared to a cow chewing her cud. You know, she gets a, a certain amount of good out of that food when she ate, eats it, but uh, then the way I understand, she, the cow will bring that up and chew it some more, and, and get a lot more good out of that food. And, and so that's, I believe, what, what happens when we meditate on God's Word. Yes, we may gain a bit from it when we read over it quickly, but if we meditate on it, if we actually take the time to meditate on it, it does us uh, a lot more good than if we just quickly skim over it. I find for myself that one thing that um, has been a blessing is is to write down some things, not just read over it, but to write down some things. It's it's good for uh, for right then. It's good for later, and you need uh, some material for talks or whatever. And um, thinking about this thing of meditation, even even negative things that we think about. Why do we do that? I think it's often because we derive a certain amount of comfort or enjoyment out of it. And, uh, of course, that's not what we have in focus here. We want to focus on God's Word and get the blessings that we can from that. There's uh, Many of you are familiar with the book Tea Leaves, and there's a real uh, good little article in there about meditation. I've asked Ronnie to read that, so if you want to read that for us now on meditation. As we sat in the living room one evening, each one occupied with his own activity. Our eight-year-old asked, Mom, what is meditation? She was memorizing Psalm 119 as a school assignment. I tried to explain that it is letting God's Word be digested in our souls. Really thinking about the words and how they fit us personally. Just as our food is digested and gives strength throughout our body. She went on studying, but I was still thinking about meditation. David's meditation was on his precepts. So often things crowd out my meditation. We need to spend time alone with God each day. But since many of our duties don't take a conscious effort, we can meditate while we are doing dishes, mending, sweeping clothes, or hanging 
Jesus. We, if we allow it to, our minds will remember the ill treatment we received from someone, nursing a grudge so as not to let it die. In verse 14, the writer compels God's testimonies to great riches. How often do I let my mind think of the earthly possessions that are a little too dear to me, or some I wish I could have? I want the meditations of my heart to be such as to give strength to my soul. I want them to penetrate my being to the extent that when an unforeseen trial threatens, my faith will cling to his precepts. Okay, how are we doing? Do we, does that ring any bells with us? Um, what do we think about when, when we say our mind is out of gear, so to speak? Um, is it negative things that have happened to us? Is it things that we would love to be able to buy? Uh, things that we'd love to be able to do? If you're like me, yes, those are some of the things that are so easy think about. Um, so may God help us to, to meditate more on his word. I believe studying, actually getting in and studying helps us because we can find out things that we didn't know before. Um, I also mentioned this thing of writing some things down. Uh, one of the big things, obviously, is just taking time. If we don't, if we don't have enough time for our devotions, then it's going to be really hard to to uh, meditate. Well, he says, he meditates on it day and night. I don't know if any of you have trouble sleeping. Um, some of us have trouble getting enough sleep, but some of the people actually have trouble sleeping at night. And so for them, and even for any of us as we wake in the night, uh, it would be wonderful to, to be thinking on God's precepts rather than on other things. <clears throat> Jeremiah said, Thy words were found and I did eat them. Now that reading spoke of digesting God's word. Jeremiah saying, I... His words were found, and I did eat them. He actually um, ate them. When we when we eat something, it becomes a part of us. And uh, so, is that is that what's happening in our experience? He said, "And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I'm called by thy name." And uh, so, how do we how do we deal with God's word? Is it becoming a part of us? We're going on then. What is the result of choosing the best? We, we talked here about um, if we want to be a blessed person, we need to reject evil and we need to choose the best. Well, and of course, choosing the best is God's word. He meditates on it day and night. And he's compared to a tree planted by the rivers of water. And this is what we're trying to show here tonight is a tree. And... Um, Seems to me, from what from little I was studying there, that it seems like maybe this this verse almost has the idea even of 
not just a tree planted by this type of a river, but perhaps even more that concept of a tree planted by uh, maybe a small irrigation ditch, maybe out in a dry country, and there's an irrigation ditch where where there's a tree planted by that by that source of water, that source of life that maybe uh, you know wouldn't actually have life if it weren't for the tree. Around here we have a lot of trees that aren't by any river, so to speak, and they do just fine. But if this was a desert land, you uh, you would need water. A tree would need water. And so if it was going to bear a lot of fruit. And so perhaps the concept of being actually a fruitful tree in a desert land by an irrigation stream where, where there was no life unless we were close to the life-giving Word of God, perhaps that's a, a more accurate picture. He should be like a tree planted by this rivers of water. And so what are the results? We're talking now about what's the results of a blessed life. He said, in the first place, he says, and the first point, I guess I should say, that I want to bring out is the fact that a man that's planted by the rivers of water is stable. He is, he is a stable person. Now, this tree here, I'm trying to make it look stable. He's got a, a good root system, uh, large and, and strong limbs, and so it's a, a stable tree. You know, even a very, very small tree, if you try to pull it up after it's been rooted in the ground, it's very difficult. Think how hard it would be to pull out a tree, a tree like this. And so, if we're meditating on God's Word, if we've chosen God's Word, then hopefully we'll be a strong Christian, a stable Christian, one that's not, one that's not uh, going to be swayed by all of the, well, the trials, the difficulties, the false doctrines that come along our way, things that would perhaps, things that would perhaps, um, make someone that was unstable to fall away. We need to be to be rooted and grounded in God's Word. The Scripture talks about established, strengthened, and settled. And that's uh, the result of, of feeding and choosing on God, choosing God's Word. Another one is fruitfulness. The man that's drinking from God's Word has something to share with others. And we're going to put some fruit on this tree. And uh, hopefully you can bear with me. I'm not sure this looks much like an apple tree, but we'll put some apples on here. And uh, now the man that's that's feasting on God's word, he he has a lot to share with others. It's not just that he's barely making it, that he's barely surviving, but he has plenty of fruit. Of course, this is not fruit that we produce by ourselves, but Scripture speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, that comes as we're yielded and as we're drinking from the fountain of life. Oh, you get the picture. Fruitfulness. Another one that we have is he's faithful in times of difficulty. The scripture says his leaf also shall not wither. And so even when there's trials and there's difficult times, he doesn't just give up in despair. His leaf does not wither. He's faithful in times of difficulty. 
When he faces trials, he draws on the promises of God. And uh, then finally he says, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now, the scripture speaks of, of Joseph. We are familiar with the story of Joseph. It speaks of him as being a prosperous man. And you know the story of how he, uh, as a young man, he, he was in favor with his father and um, was successful there, even even that stage in his life. And then then later on, he um, it seemed like life, we might say, was was giving him a hard blow, and um, he was sold, very treated very unjustly sold down in there into Egypt. And um, but you know about the first thing that, that happened after he was, well, I shouldn't say the first thing, but you know the story of how that he, he became a very prosperous man there in the house of, of Potiphar. And it seemed that Potiphar recognized this and, and uh, gave him a very responsible position. He didn't pay attention even to his business dealings, it seems, because... Joseph was faithful, he was prosperous, and um, whatever he did, God made it to prosper, it seemed. Well, then you know the story of how it seemed as though things went against him again, and he um, he was lied about, put in prison. But you know, the interesting thing was, it just seemed like that could, anything could stop him, because there he was in prison, and again, he was prosperous, he was trustworthy. He was dependable. And so, even there, God was with him and made him prosper. Well, then we we know the story of how he was finally released after years in prison and uh, became ruler over all the land of Egypt. And so when we think about delighting in God's word and whatsoever we do shall prosper, is this the type of prosperity that we can expect? That, yeah, we might face some hardships, but just look out. One of these days, we're going to show the world that um, we're going to be prosperous people and things are really going to work out for us. Well, I think we know that we know very well that that's not necessarily the type of prosperity that's being referred to. Now, it is true that we believe as Christians that all things, we have the promise that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. And uh, so, yes, God is working all things together for our good. And, uh, and so we can claim prosperity as we, as we uh, are in God's word. But this kind of prosperity isn't necessarily the type of prosperity that the world thinks of, just as... We need to reject their values in other areas. So I believe that too often we have equated prosperity with with wealth. And I'm not sure that that's the New Testament teaching. And so I believe, what do we, if, if we're going to say that, that uh, physical prosperity 
is a sign of God's blessing, then what do we, how do we reconcile the fact that so many sincere godly people in other countries have had to suffer so terribly and were very poor and, and still are? And uh, so I believe that, that a person can be prosperous and be spiritually prosperous regardless of how physically sick and poor they may be in other ways. Some of the most physically poor people, um, sickly, we might say, poor, maybe some of the most prosperous in God's kingdom. And if you think about the, the poor widow with the couple mites and this blessing that Jesus spoke on her life, um, I believe that we have, we have reason to believe that that the Lord considers the poor to be prosperous. However, I believe on the other side of all of what I'm just saying here that there is a sense in which God prospers even in other ways at times those that follow His principles, those that delight themselves in the Word of God. I believe that there are many ways in which God prospers those types of individuals. For instance, in business, if a person is honest, if a person follows the golden rule, if he's sincere, if he is uh, dependable, well, oftentimes God blesses him with plenty of customers, with plenty of work, with uh, a good reputation, and I believe this is, is according to God's will too. And so they may prosper financially as a result, at least partially as a result, of their willingness to follow biblical principles in business. Physically, a Christian may be prosperous physically uh, simply as a result of, of following good, good health principles, being temperate in their work, in their um, Yes, being temperate in their work, abstaining from alcohol and tobacco and drugs and, and other vices. And so a Christian may have better health simply as a result of following biblical principles. Emotionally, the Christian is able to better, should be able to better cope with the stresses of life than someone who doesn't have the comfort of God and His Word. And uh, in relationships, a Christian ought to be prospering. Really, a Christian ought to have make the best, ought to make the best marriage partners, ought to make the best parents, ought to make the best children, uh, ought to make the best employees, the best employers. All the way around, really, the Christian ought to be prospering in his relationships. Finally, the Lord, the Scripture says, "God knoweth the way of the righteous." And so we have God on our side. We have God watching out for us. As the scripture says, um, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And so we have God on our side. And these are some of the blessings, some of the results of choosing that which is best. Now, there's also the results of neglecting God. And we've been talking here tonight about, about choosing the best, rejecting that which is evil. And you know, in this psalm, I think it's interesting that there's really only two choices given. It's either choosing God and His Word, meditating on that, being the righteous, or following the ways of the wicked. 
And I believe that too often in our world, so often in our world, people want to have a third choice. And perhaps we buy into that too often too. We'd like to have a third choice. We don't necessarily want to pay the price of, of having a close relationship with the Lord. But we don't want to be with the wicked either. And, uh, and yet in this passage, there's really only two choices outlined for us. Either choosing God's word, choosing that which is best, choosing to be on God's side, choosing to meditate on God's word, or rejecting it. And what's he say? The results of neglecting God's word. And we might say neglecting because it's, we don't often actually put forth the, uh, we don't make the decision that we're going to reject it, but it just comes from neglect. Well, he says, the ungodly are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. And these little sketches I was trying to make up here were trying to be uh, portraying a bit of a, a threshing scene. And you all probably understand how that worked in those days. The way I understand you would have had um, men to cut the wheat with sickles. And then at some place they would have had a threshing floor. And you would have had a man with a flail, a little piece attached back here, and he would strike that against the wheat, pile of wheat, and uh, probably have these men too close together. But anyway, maybe one might be endangered here. But uh, you'd have a threshing floor, and then the other man here would be winnowing out the wheat. There would might be a, a, a pile of, of wheat that had been threshed. And the idea would be for them to, to pitch this wheat up into the air, the grains, and the little, the little chaff, the, the covering, the little husk surrounding the grains of wheat would then be blown away. Okay, well, you get the idea at least. Um, and so the grain was, was pitched in the air, the chaff blew away, and of course it was gone. In this passage, he is comparing, he's making a contrast between this man, the righteous, and that chaff that's being blown away. That's the contrast between the righteous and the wicked in this passage. Now, do we believe that? Do we really believe that? That this is the righteous and that's the wicked? 
If you go driving up and down the roads, if you're like me, it's pretty easy to look around and you see all these big houses and you see these nice vehicles. You see all of these things that people have. And, you know, we assume that a lot of them aren't really Christian people. Maybe some of them are. And, you know, it seems as though this is some, this conflict is something that people have struggled with down through the ages. Why is it that it seems like the wicked are prospering so much and the righteous are the ones that are suffering? And, you know, it seems like this is no, nothing new that this has been a struggle down through the ages. Ronnie, I'd like you to read Psalm 37, verses 35 to 40. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away and lo, he was not. Yea, I saw him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man and behold the upright. But the end of that man is peace, but the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. The Lord shall help them to deliver them. He will, he shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Okay. There the psalmist, it looked to him as though the righteous or the wicked were spreading themselves like a green bay tree. In other words, just this would have been a picture of the wicked this big tree here. But I can't repeat exactly how that passage has it, but you, you notice, did you notice the contrast? The wicked... Um, he passed away, though he was not. But Mark, the perfect man, the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors will be destroyed. And, you know, we don't know when God's hand of judgment is going to be on this part of the country, we might say. And I'll leave that up to you whether you consider some of the recent happenings as God's judgment or not. But, you know, whether or not it's a direct judgment or not, these things are so temporary. These earthly possessions, regardless of how great our assets may be. It's like the scripture says, riches have wings, and make themselves wings and fly away. And so... May we not become envious of the wicked and think, oh my, we could just be like them. Even though they may seem to be spreading themselves and not having any trouble. May we not uh, envy them, remembering the judgment that is due them. And so regardless of how full and rich a life may seem, maybe, maybe the people that bother us aren't, aren't the people in the world that are doing so well, but maybe it's a brother in the church even. Maybe it's someone like that that seems to be bothering us. And uh, we do well to leave those things with God. But regardless of how, how rich and full a life may seem, somebody seems to be even someone that may be a, a good man and, and uh, helping other people, if it's, if it's a life lived without God, it's empty, meaningless, and doesn't have purpose. 
And so is it any wonder why there's so much instability, insecurity, fears, and emptiness in people around us? What is the meaning of life anyway? Is it just the never-ending race of chasing the almighty dollar? Well, the scripture says that the wicked will be condemned. It says, therefore the wicked, or those disobedient living without God, shall not stand or shall not stand justified in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Charles Spurgeon said something like this, Sinners cannot live in heaven. They would be out of their element. Sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in heaven paradise. The only way they will ever be able to endure heaven is to be born again and become new creatures with pure hearts, able fully to enjoy the presence of God, His holy angels, and the redeemed. And so if people don't enjoy being with the saints now, how do they think they're going to enjoy being in heaven? Well, the scripture the psalm ends up saying, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. You know, the wicked, even today, are blessed. They're blessed of God. They, he's, the, the scripture says he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Every good and perfect gift is from above, cometh down from the Father of lights. And so they're blessed. There's coming a day when they won't even experience those types of blessings of God. When they'll be judged when the judgment will fall upon them. And so, there's coming a time, even though they may seem so great at this time, when they truly will be like the chaff, or even worse, of course, because of needing to face the judgment. If you'll bear with me here, I want to just finish off the picture here a little bit. that's supposed to be a little island. Now, the title of the message was The Key to a Blessed Life. If you use your imagination, it's supposed to look like a key. If you can block it off here, it's supposed to look like a key. And, um, you know, what is the key to a blessed life, really? Well, maybe we've talked about a number of them. Rejecting evil, choosing the best, which is God's word. But truly the key to a blessed life is to be in a right relationship with the Lord and to be drinking from Him, from the fountain of life. And so I trust that this picture can maybe help to impress upon us um, the value of God's Word and being right with Him versus having all of the things of this world and yet being just like the chaff which the wind driveth away. May the Lord bless all of you.